Hi everyone, we're going to be reading uh, from John chapter 15. If you'd like one of the church Bibles, stick your hand up and the ushers will bring those round. Otherwise it's also up on the screen so you can follow along up there. So John chapter 15. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. some reason, strangely, the audio wasn't coming through. It was very strange. It was um, earlier, but the computer's not liking it. So I'll just tell you about that clip. Do you remember Braveheart? (laughs) So when I was about 15, I went up to see some friends in Sydney, jumped on the train. I I lived about two hours south of Sydney. So they were from Gosford, about an hour and a half north of Sydney on the train. So we Both jumped on trains and ended up in Central Station in the middle of Sydney. And we thought, what are we going to do? So we decided to go and see this movie. Now, I hadn't heard really anything about it. So I walked in not knowing what was in store for me as I went to see the movie Braveheart. 
But I walked out completely blown away as a 15-year-old. Now, I, I particularly love that scene that I was going to try and show you where you've got the Scottish army and you've got these terrible Scottish leaders who are just failing their people time and time again, getting rich off them, uh, benefiting off them while they're suffering. And then there you've got all those scraggly bunch of people who you caught a glimpse of, the Scottish army, downtrodden, cowering, and and if, if you remember that scene, they're all just slipping away, abandoning the fight. And then you've got William Wallace, William Wallace, this is Mel Gibson before he fell from grace, so just keep that in mind. This dynamic leader, this unconventional leader who seems to come from nowhere, driven by passion, not driven by greed and power. He's driven by truth and justice. And it looks like the English are going to conquer and dominate the Scottish yet again, but he rallies the troops. You know, this is the famous freedom speech, if you remember. He opens their eyes to what they're really abandoning. If they slink away, I run, you might live, stay, you might die. But how does it go? Something like every day, you know, since as you're lying on your bed, wouldn't you want just one more chance, just one more chance to come back and tell your enemies they might take your lives, but they will never take your... Okay, you have seen it. I believe you now. He opens their eyes to what they're really abandoning if they slink away. He unites them to the task at hand. He turns the tide. They remain. They fight and they win. It was brilliant stuff. It was so rallying that uh, as a 15-year-old, if I had have bumped into some English people on the train on the way home, I honestly don't know what would have happened. Now... Today we continue in John's retelling of the night before Jesus died, as Jane has reminded us. These past four weeks, this whole time, we've been in that upper room with them there. Uh, It's just hours before Jesus is going to be betrayed, beaten, mocked, killed. Just hours before Jesus' disciples are going to be terrified, scattered, And what's their temptation? Well, it's to slink away into the dark night, to abandon Jesus. And it's not just theoretical stuff for them. We've already seen one of them has done just that. Judas walks out on Jesus in that upper room. He cuts himself off from him. There were 12, now there's just 11. There's just Jesus and the 11 against a hostile world and the devil himself who wants to destroy them. What good can possibly come from this strange collection of of fishermen, tax collectors, and misfits? What fruit can they possibly bear? As they leave the warmth and, and, and the safety of that upper room to head out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where the events of the cross are just about to unfold, as they look at, at the difficult three days ahead, the difficult three decades ahead, surely the temptation for them would be to just leave Jesus behind. Surely that temptation has never been stronger for them. Now, in a different kind of way, I'm guessing that we've all felt that same temptation. I've felt it at a few points in my life for a variety of different reasons. We all have. 
you know, if you know this temptation to, to just leave Jesus behind, then you can sympathize just a little bit with the disciples. And with them, we need to hear what Jesus is saying here. Look at what Jesus says again, verse 5. We'll skip that and go to verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As they leave the upper room where they've been, as they head towards the Garden of Gethsemane, on the way that they would have passed vineyards. And so as they walk past these grapevines, Jesus uses them as a metaphor to explain how it is that they'll bear fruit in their lives and in the world. He rallies them, not to fight the Romans or the English or to fight anyone. He rallies them to remain in him. Look at what he says in in verse 1. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. And he tells us what this means, verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus' point is really clear. This is the really big point of this part. Jesus says that they need to remain in him. We need Jesus to produce the fruit that God wants. Now right across this section, this is what we just keep seeing. So we've already seen it in verse 5. We saw it in verse 4 just there. We see it again in verse 6. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. We see it again in in verse 9 in a slightly different way. Jesus says, now remain in my love. The, The clear dominant note in what Jesus is saying is that they will only bear fruit if they remain in him. Verse 16. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Outside of Jesus, they won't produce the fruit that God wants. I've got six fruit trees in my backyard. That's uh, one of them there. And when a branch gets broken on them, which usually happens when the boys are playing soccer in the backyard... I can tell you from experience, if, it get, if a branch gets broken, it has no chance of producing fruit. Now, it might look strong and, and healthy for a time. There might even still be fruit still attached and green leaves for a time. But once a branch is cut off from its source, from the flow of life, it, it withers. It dries out. It drops its fruit. It's inevitable. It just can't produce the, the beauty of fruit on its own. But let's just step back from this claim of Jesus for a second. Is this arrogance? You know, to start with, is this arrogance from Jesus to claim to be the only way to a fruitful life? And then, secondly, is this arrogance from Jesus' followers to think that they're the only ones who can have a fruitful life? It sounds like arrogance. And if that's how it sounds to you, I get that. But can I encourage you just to have a a bit of a closer look? Because it's not arrogance for at least two reasons. First, it's not arrogance if it's true. Now, it might be narrow, but that's actually different. 
to arrogance. I find fruit trees and, and grapevines kind of miraculous in a way. It's in my blood to sort of love them. My, my parents um, ran an orchard for a while. Dad tried, tried to turn our suburban uh, backyard into an orchard. When he moved off that, we had about 20 fruit trees. But for me, the idea that, that leaves and wood kind of tapping into the earth, drawing on the sun, that they can produce flowers and then small fruit that, that grows into something beautiful. Grape branches producing fruit that can be turned into wine. It's amazing. It's miraculous. But the idea that a branch could do all that without the vine, it's just not true. It's ridiculous. Without the, the life flow of the vine, the simple, honest truth is that the branch withers under the sun and dies. And it's not arrogance to say that. Arrogance is for a branch to think that it doesn't need the vine. If Jesus really is the source of life, then the honest truth is that we need him. He's the way, the truth, and the life, as we've just heard. Now, it's narrow for sure, but if it's true, it can't be arrogance. The idea that, that we can cut ourselves off from the source of life and, and produce in ourselves, from ourselves, the things of life is a fantasy. We might be leafy and hold fruit for a time, but just like the sun's not a, fr- a friend of a branch that's been cut off from the vine, life's not a friend for us outside of Jesus. Life will wither us and dry us out completely. Jesus is not being arrogant if he's simply speaking the truth. But there's a second reason why Jesus isn't being arrogant here. And that's got to do with what the fruit actually is. The fruit that Jesus is talking about. See, outside of Jesus, do people have fruitful lives? Well, that all depends on how you define fruit, doesn't it? Jesus isn't necessarily saying what we hear. He's not saying only people in me are valuable. He's not even saying only people in me will do good things. Only people in me will love others. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that only people in him will produce the fruit that God desires. The fruit that God says lasts, not just in this life, but forever. He's the only way people will produce that kind of fruit. Now, we can make the mistake of thinking that by remaining in Jesus, we'll get the kind of fruit we want. Jesus will give us the happy life we want, the healthy, long life that we want with financial security, emotional stability and comfort. But that's not the fruit that he promises. And I can tell you that for a fact because have a look just a few verses later what Jesus says to them in verse 20. He says, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And read a couple of verses after that. And he tells them that that could mean, a fruitful life could mean for them even being put to death. 
the fruit that Jesus says they can only produce in him is not the fruit that we might selfishly want. It's the fruit that God wants. He's the gardener. It's his vineyard. And Jesus' point is that outside of him, none of us can produce the fruit that God wants. Now, we might not like the fact that God says that, that outside of Jesus, we can't produce that fruit. But again, if this is, if this is God saying it, then it just can't be considered arrogance. Can we really say to God, I don't particularly want you in my life. I don't particularly want to know you. I'm not particularly interested in following what you have to say. I'm not especially interested in Jesus who you love more than all things. But what I do want, God, is for you to be happy with whatever fruit I want to produce in my life, even if it's not what you want from me. I want you to accept whatever fruit I produce. And if you're not happy to just accept me, God, as I am, then I consider you petty and a little bit arrogant. See, can we really say that? It doesn't work that way. That's arrogance. And yet in in small ways and, and sometimes in big ways, that's exactly what we all say to God. I don't want kids who say to me, look, Dad, here's the fruit that I'm willing to produce in my life. I'll do well at school. I'll live healthily. I'll be respectful to other people and I won't break the law. That's the fruit. But I'm not interested in knowing you or mum or my brothers and sisters. I'm not interested in spending time with you or listening to you and you're just going to have to accept that. That's not the fruit that I'm hoping to find in the life of my kids. It doesn't matter how well they do at school or how nice they are to the teachers Am I arrogant to say that's not enough for me? I want to know them. I want them to know me. And the same way, it doesn't matter how good we are in ourselves, how loving, how successful in life, if we cut ourselves off from God, we can't produce the fruit He wants. Because He wants us. He wants us to know Him. And us. And He wants to know us. God says that is only possible through Jesus the vine. Look again at at verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Jesus is the true vine, which means there are other false vines that that just don't produce the fruit that lasts. In Isaiah chapter 5 in the Old Testament, and actually in lots of places in the Old Testament, God's people, they're described as a, a kind, kind of like a bunch of vines in a vineyard. Uh, a bunch of vines in a vineyard that have been planted by God. But they fail time and time again, all of them, to ever produce the fruit that God wants. So what Jesus is saying here is actually something wonderful, something amazing. He's saying that through him, God's people will finally produce the fruit he desires. But it will only be as they depend on Jesus, like branches depend on the vine. And this brings us to our second point. Our part in producing the fruit is remaining in Jesus. How many times in this part, as it was read before, how many times does Jesus command us to produce fruit? Did you notice? 
Now, clearly it's what God wants from us, like we saw in, in verse 16. I chose you, appointed you, so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit's the goal, but how many times are we commanded to produce it? Not even once. What are we told? To remain in Jesus. Our part in producing fruit is remaining in Jesus. The, the fruit comes about in us from the vine, from the gardener. We don't produce fruit by tapping into ourselves, by looking to our own willpower or our own ability. Now, so often we forget this. We want to please God and so we look within and we try harder and sometimes people can even beat themselves up as if we're the vine or we're the gardener. But we're not. Do you want to produce fruit in your life that pleases God? Well, then here's the thing. You don't look to the fruit. You look to Jesus and God sees to the fruit. The word remain it's used 10 times in these 17 verses. Jesus' point is extremely clear. The 11 disciples need to remain in him, and it's exactly the same for us. Our part in producing fruit is remaining in Jesus. Now, Jesus, he goes on to spell out what remaining in him really means. Look at verse 9. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. See, see that? Remaining in Jesus, first of all, means remaining in his love. And we see what this involves in the, in the next verse. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Now this isn't Jesus saying, I'll only love you if you do what I want. It's not like that. It's Jesus saying, follow my example. Follow my way of life. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. See that? Remaining in Jesus is about remaining in his pattern of life. It really shouldn't surprise us that being a follower of Jesus means following Jesus. And what's been Jesus' pattern of, of life? Well, he tells us there, love and obedience he has first loved them like the father loved him he has first shown them his obedience to the father like he calls for obedience from them love and obedience and we see the very heart of, of what it remain, means to remain in jesus in verse 12 where we see love and obedience come together jesus says my command is this Love each other as I have loved you. Now this is huge. We're so to draw from the vine. So to follow Jesus that remaining in him means remaining in his pattern of extreme love. Following his pattern of extreme love. Even to death. Look at verse 13. Jesus goes on to say, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. It's not that they become his friends by following his pattern, but that they show themselves to be his friends. They show their true colors when they follow him. You show your true colors when you follow him. And this is a, this is a third reason 
why what Jesus is saying could never be called arrogance, not rightly. What's the shape and pattern of life that, that Jesus is showing us? It's not arrogance. It's humility, pure humility. It's obedience to the Father. That's humility. It's love of others, love so great that it's laying down life for others. That's humility. It's love that takes people who aren't even worthy to be called servants and actually makes them friends. That's humility. And it's a way of life that calls others not to arrogance, but to actually follow the very same pattern of living in their own life. In his letter, John, who writes this gospel, in his letter in in 1 John 3.16, he applies what Jesus is saying here to every believer, not just the 11 there. And he says, he writes, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then John goes on to explain what this looks like. What it means for us in the very next verse. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. See, remaining in Jesus means being shaped by Jesus, which means laying down our lives for one another, not only in words, but in action and in truth. And so if I ask us, are we remaining in Jesus? What Jesus is saying to us here means that I can actually ask this in a much more pointed way. We can ask, are we remaining in Jesus' love? Or are there greater loves crowding in? Are we obeying Jesus' commands? Or is it the case that those other loves' demands are calling the shots? And finally, are we loving each other with real actions of love or just in words? Maybe today over morning too you could reflect on these questions. But whatever you do, before you go to sleep tonight, reflect on these questions. Are you remaining in Jesus' love? Are you obeying Jesus' commands? Are you loving each other, not not in words alone, but in real actions of love? And if these questions actually make you realize you might be slipping from Jesus, do something about it. Talk to someone who loves him, someone else who loves Jesus Don't do nothing about it because apart from Jesus, there's only withering and in the end, spiritual death. And whatever you do, don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is talking about a cold, duty-bound kind of obedience here. That would be to miss the point. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Do you see the irony here? We're servants of Jesus made friends. It's not all about how we feel. And yet what brings Jesus joy? Us. And what does Jesus really care about? Our joy. But notice the way to true joy is by keeping Jesus' commands. Now I've always found this to be true in my life. I don't know about you. 
But lasting joy comes from obedience, even when obedience to Jesus is really hard. And when I'm disobedient to Jesus, it's fleeting happiness at best that ends in disappointment. It's not all about what makes us happy, and yet Jesus cares all about our joy. And actually, the irony continues, because it's not all about what we want. It's not all about the fruit that we want in our lives. And yet, what is it that God really cares about? Look at verse 7. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, Jesus says, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And again, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is ridiculous. God's heart is that he wants to give us whatever we wish for, whatever we want. And this is our our final point. Remaining in Jesus brings joy as we receive what we want. Fruit. That brings glory to God. If a branch or a vine could ask for anything, what would it ask for? You know, a a branch on a on a grapevine. It might ask for sunny days or rain, perhaps, healthy growth, relief from pests. But for all these things, why would it be asking? Fruit is why. So that it could produce fruit. You know, a grapevine is not going to say Oh Lord, won't you get me a Mercedes Benz or a million dollars? just doesn't make any sense to a branch because everything in that branch is driving towards bearing fruit. Jesus is saying here that, that if we remain in him and then his words remain in us, then we'll find ourselves genuinely, genuinely wanting the fruit that God wants. Not pretending, genuinely. And we'll find ourselves... Asking for the fruit that God wants. And here's the thing. Getting the fruit that we want. Have you ever heard the expression, what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies? This is true, so true. This, this just describes human nature to a T. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind well, it just justifies. Without Jesus, what we desire, what we want, what we choose, what we justify, it doesn't lead to the things that please God. It just leads to fruit that doesn't last. But what God wants for us is to so realign our hearts that we desire what's actually good for us. And we ask what's actually good for us. And then we delight in it when God gives it to us. God wants to change the desires of our hearts. And the one and only possible way that that can happen is when we see the love of God on display in Jesus who lays down his life for us. Nothing else will do it. No other vine can change our hearts like that. It's only when we remain in Jesus that his love conquers our hearts, changes our hearts. His love bears fruit in our lives like no other vine can. Now, this is powerful. Ask God for fruit in your life and he will give it to you. Not the fruit we desire outside of God, but the fruit we desire in Jesus. 
God's the gardener. He'll prune you to produce fruit. Not a comfortable life, not riches and self-glory in this life, because none of that is what the Father wants from us, because none of that lasts. None of those things bring lasting joy. But ask for the fruit that lasts, and God has promised, bound himself, that he will give it to you. That's powerful. And today, even today, if you've just realized that you've never been interested in producing the fruit that God wants, today, if you come to Jesus and give your life to him, to love him, to obey him and follow him, God promises you he will give you that fruit. If you want the fruit that lasts forever, it's only found in Jesus and he offers it to you. Take him seriously. Come talk to me or someone you know here about that. But what is this fruit that lasts? What is this fruit exactly? In Isaiah 5, in the Old Testament, where it talks about the vines, the fruit that God goes looking for in his people is righteousness and justice. And he doesn't find it. But what about here? Is it righteousness and and justice in us? Is it kind of Christian character sort of things? Is it love and what comes from us loving each other? Is it people coming to know God as, as they see the impact he has on our lives? Well, the fruit is all these things. The fruit is everything that flows from remaining in Jesus and living obedient to his pattern of life. It's Christian character. It's loving like Jesus. It's people coming to know Jesus. It's all these things. Now, this passage, it's, it's massively encouraging. Remain in Jesus. Ask the Father and he He will give you the fruit that pleases him. Now, it's encouraging, but there's also a warning for us. And the warning is not, hurry up and produce your quota of fruit. The warning is, remain in Jesus. The 11 disciples needed to hear this on that night as they leave the upper room and head to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we need to hear this too. And so I want to finish by asking you, Are you remaining in Jesus? Or are you toying with the idea of not remaining? There are many things, many loves that that threaten us remaining in Jesus. Now, I, I, I don't say this judgmentally at all. It's hard to remain in Jesus. Sometimes remaining with Jesus, it just seems too costly. Once I knew a guy whose dad tore up his Bible and said to him, it's either Jesus or your family, and if you choose Jesus, you can leave. He chose his family. Once I knew a different guy whose dad literally threatened to kill him if he chose Jesus. He gave up on Jesus. Sometimes I've seen a husband or a wife choose what looks like peace in their marriage relationship instead of Jesus. You know, a partner is gently tugging them away, And seeing the way that Jesus affects their relationship, it's just too much. It's too hard to follow him. Sometimes I see people chasing fun, comfort, ease, money or experiences or pleasure. Or even the weekend, they slip slowly, slowly in love with other things and out of love with Jesus. Sometimes I see people feeling the pressures of looking intelligent or tolerant 
or enlightened or trendy. Sometimes we love the opinion, the opinions of others or our own opinions of ourselves or our family. And the idea of being thought of as, as dumb, naive, intolerant, unloving, homophobic, repressive, closed-minded, judgmental. Sometimes it seems too hard to stay true to Jesus when, when people label us with these things. We love the opinion of others or ourselves too much to remain. And we lay down our love for Jesus and take up our love for ourselves and dress it up in the words of enlightenment. What about you? Where are you tempted to abandon Jesus? You know, it's usually not one big cut that makes us leave Jesus. It's usually a thousand small cuts, a thousand more small steps that take us away from him, a thousand small compromises, a thousand decisions that weaken our connection to him. We, we flirt with loving other things more than Jesus until we actually do love them more than Jesus. Remember, Jesus doesn't command us produce fruit here. He says to us, stay with me. Don't go. Don't leave me. Remain in my love. If we abandon Jesus, what we're really abandoning is our greatest friend who lays down his life for us, who alone can bring about fruit in us that lasts forever. If we see Jesus for who he really is, the vine, our Lord, our Savior, our greatest friend, it just doesn't make sense to abandon him. His love is, is too real, too wonderful, too powerful. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do your work in our hearts that we would desire to produce in our lives the fruit that you desire. And Lord, we know that this only comes as we look to Jesus, as we look to his extreme love, as you conquer our hearts by his sacrifice in our place. Lord, we pray that we would remain in him, that we would see that this is not a cold, duty-bound obedience, but this is love. Love, yes, lived out in obedience, but joyful obedience and Lord, help us to see that this is the way that our lives will be fruitful, joyful, not just now, but for all eternity. Lord, where we are weakening or feeling weakened in our relationship with Jesus, please strengthen it. Help us to take the steps to remain in him so that we might not dry and wither and be cast out from him forever. Lord, do that work in our lives. Renew us again to see just how wonderful Jesus is. And we pray this in his name. Amen. This next song we're about to sing, uh, Year 7 to 9s are going to head out um, with Darren and Anthea to uh, Trinity Youth Sunday. So if you're in Year 7 to 9 and you want to head out to that, you can. But the rest of us are going to stay and sing a song. And in this song it says, His is the right to rule my life. Mine is the joy to live for him. We remain in Jesus' love. We obey his commands. And it gives us joy, joy and fruit that lasts forever.